is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land what a day glorious day that will be there'll be no sorrow there no more burdens to bear no more sickness no pain no more parting over there and forever i will be with the one who died for me what a day glorious day that will be what a day that will be when my jesus i shall see and i look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land what a day glorious day that will be well that will be a glorious day well that will be a glorious day won't it man that's going to be a wonderful day Praise the Lord. Well, take your Bible. Turn over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to begin reading verse 42 in just a moment. But I was just wondering, can you cry underwater? I just wonder. There's some things I just got to figure out. I mean, how important does a person have to be before they're considered assassinated instead of just murdered? That's a good question, right? I mean, if money doesn't grow on trees, then why do, why do banks have branches? Just trying to figure it out, you know? That's all. I mean, I mean why do you have to put your two cents in but it's only a penny for your thoughts. I mean, where's the extra penny go to? Pretty good, actually, right? Oh, this is, this is something I'm really struggling with. What did cured ham actually have? What was it? I mean, what was it cured from? And why do people say things like, they slept like a baby when babies wake up every two hours? 
And why are you in a movie, but not on, but why are you in a movie, but you're on TV? That's, think about that. And why do people pay to go up tall buildings and then put money in binoculars to look at things on the ground? It's kind of crazy. There's just some thought things that are just very perplexing in life. You know, I mean, these are answers. I'm going to have to dig into the Word and figure it out. <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 24 today. Matthew chapter 24. And uh, there, beginning in verse 42. The Bible says, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come, but know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. This passage obviously addresses the return of Jesus Christ. Now I understand doctrinally it places us there in the tribulation already in chapter 24. I get all that. But can I tell you that as a prelude to the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation, there's already going to be another return. It's called the rapture. And can I tell you that there are so many characteristics that are the same and very similar that it's sometimes difficult to distinguish between the two exactly. But one thing I know is that what's taking place in the tribulation didn't happen overnight. Much of it is already starting to take place in our lifetime and in our day now. I read a story about Billy Graham and he spoke about having breakfast with Walter Ruther, president of the United Auto Workers Union. He was the union rep or the, 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 the president from 46, 1946 till 1970. And Ruther said, you know, science could bring a paradise to earth by the year 2000. <laughs> We've been past that for 22 years. Billy Graham made this statement back then in the late 60s. He said, there is one flaw. No one has fed into the computers the facts about man's moral weakness, his tendency toward hate, lust, greed, that produce racism, crime, war, and thousands of other evils. That's a pretty good insight. The truth is that only God can truly bring peace on earth. Only he can provide paradise. And one day he will do so. However, before that day, a number of things must take place. The predictions of future events occupy approximately, I'd say about a quarter of all the Bible. That's a lot, really. The teaching of the second coming of Jesus Christ is dealt with in some 1,800 passages in the Bible. Over 318 of these are in the New Testament alone. The prophecies of the Bible, interestingly enough, do not predict a world of gradual progress leading to a materialistic paradise. doesn't happen that way. Matter of fact, they see a world that's tattered and torn by lawlessness, by war and famine, by pestilence, on a scale, mind you, that only God himself can overcome if the human race is to exist at all. Constantly throughout the Bible, we read, Statements, we read the last days, that day, the day, the day of the Lord. And all of those phrases 
point to a day when Jesus Christ himself will return to the earth and establish a physical, visible kingdom. So the inevitable question is this. When is Christ coming back? I mean, do you think his coming is near? These are the kind of questions that are born out of these kind of statements. And actually, these questions are not new either. One morning on the Mount of Olives, when the disciples were alone with Jesus, they asked the same exact question. They said, Lord, in Matthew 24, 3, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? 2,000 years ago, the same question was being asked. And can I say, probably amongst believers today that know anything about the Word of God and the condition of our world, we're asking the same question. There are a number of distinct signs that were left by the prophets, that were left by Jesus himself and even the apostles that are a clue to his return. Every one of them is something that's actually in a state of fulfillment even at this very moment. And you say, why the warning? Why are we talking about that? What's the point? I'll tell you why, because he is coming back. But when he comes, those left behind will not like the world that they're going to suffer in. You know, it's time, it's a time that is identified as the tribulation. It's called the time of Daniel's trouble. It's even called the great tribulation. And that doesn't sound good already. It's going to last for seven years. It's going to be a period of judgment, a time of judgment. God's going to judge the world. Why? Because of their violent treatment of his prophets and of his son, Jesus Christ, as well as Israel. He'll be judging them because of their rejection of him. It's not going to be a fun time at all, this tribulation. And the Bible tells us that that there's a time where it's the grace of God is in place. We would call it the church age. But Jesus Christ is going to return. And when he does, he's taking his church with him, his bride with him. And then seven years of tribulation will take place following. That's a period of time that no man, no woman wants to be on earth for. I want to take just a few moments today and talk to you just a little bit about the signs of the times. And before we do that, I want to focus on that period called the Great Tribulation, or actually the Tribulation, for a little bit, just so that we understand what it is we need to escape. So let's take just a moment, have a word of prayer, and then we'll continue with our service. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd bless us this morning. you would walk these aisles and speak to our hearts. I pray you'd calm my spirit, that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I would be simply your mouthpiece. Lord, I need you today. More than ever, I need you. And I pray that you would just use me as a, a, just a, a means by which to share your truth and to share you. Lord, it's not church that we need to be taught is most important. It's you. Lord, we, we don't need to, it, it, there's nothing or no one that we need more than you today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be elevated and magnified and glorified in this service. And, Father, help me to be just a conduit, a tool in your hand to accomplish that. Now, fill me, I pray, and, Lord, may you just anoint every listening ear as well. And may we, Father, leave here having learned something that will inspire us to be better for you. And if there be those that are without Jesus Christ, 
that they had recognized their need to settle their soul salvation and to ensure that heaven's their home one day and that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 6, would you? Let's, let's know just a little bit about uh, the, this time called the tribulation. And again, this chapter gives us a summary of the tribulation. Now, there are a number of things that people teach about Revelation. Some teach that there's obviously the, the seals, the trumpets, and the vials. And some say, well, then these six take place the first couple years, and these take place so many years. And then finally at the end, the vials are opened, and that takes place. I don't personally believe that. I believe that the seals, the vials, and the trumpets all give us a summary of the entire tribulation because in each case they all end with the same exact event. And so when we look at the six seals, we're going to see a summary of the entire tribulation. We look at the trumpets, we see an entire picture. Now they don't all begin at the same place, but they all end at the same place. However, they're a picture of what's taking place in the tribulation period and the great tribulation. Watch what happens here in chapter 6 as we look at Revelation and we consider a summary of what's going to transpire and take place during the tribulation. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a, a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now it's interesting to note right off the bat that although this rider on this white horse, he has a bow and a crown, he doesn't have any arrows. Which implies to us, therefore, that he conquers without firing a shot. And, you know, I believe that the Antichrist, as we'll see in Scripture, as you take the time to look at it, is going to rise to power, and he's not going to have to fire a shot, so to speak. He's going to have all these philosophies and these empty promises that he provides, and people are going to buy into that, and it's going to elevate him and rise him to power in a, just an unbelievable fashion and speed. You say, well, what are those doctrines? And I believe that the rider, along with the white horse, represents the Antichrist and the blasphemous philosophies and those empty promises that he's going to spew out. You say, well, what are some of those? And I believe that we're seeing evidence of it already and we're moving in that direction. That's why I believe it's one of the signs of the times. But his doctrines are already taking hold. They're already gaining traction. The rapid spread of communistic ideology. You say, what do you mean? Simply put, com it's a... It Communism is man without God. And we are in a world today where we are being taught there is no God. We're being taught that you can live your life without God. And that brings us to the next philosophy that is extremely damning and, and very, you know, just destructive. It's called humanism. It's a, a doctrine that has been permeated and promoted for many years now, and it's really taking hold, and I think that it's pointing us in a bad place. It is a doctrine that we're going to see more of as we move into the tribulation and as he takes his rise to power. It's a doctrine that emphasizes evolution. I mean, there's no real evidence that God exists, right? The universe is a result of chance. Life forms gradually, emerged over millions and millions of years. Evolution. But not only that, but humanism addresses situational ethics. We think about it, man is the final authority for his own actions. There's no absolute rules anymore. 
There's no real right or wrong. We're seeing that today, are we not? Moral freedom. Everybody, including children of any age, mind you, should be exposed to all viewpoints that are, well, realistic. I mean, including profanity, immorality, perversion. Everything seems acceptable. It's, a, it, it's their methods of expression many times. The Christian gospel is not realistic at all. It has no place in the system whatsoever. This humanism is, is expressed in self-sufficiency. Man is not accountable to any higher a, a power or authority. He is responsible to himself. We see it in the anti-religious bias. Religion is harmful, actually. It's either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of survival and the fulfillment of the human race. We don't need religion. Matter of fact, religion causes war. Religion kills people. Religion is responsible for more deaths in our world than anything else ever. You've heard things like that. And may I say, many times religion, they got a point. But we're not talking about Christ-centered faith. Religion is nothing more than man's philosophy. It has no place biblically. If it is not rooted in Scripture, it's not religion, true religion at all. It's, it's, it's a man-made religion. It's not God-served religion, so to speak. We see socialism. It's born out of humanism. Government ownership or control of the economy. It's uh, it, it, private enterprises to be set aside and private ownership gone and all of those things and there should be an all-pervasive welfare state. I mean, this is all part of humanistic thinking. It's all a prelude to the, the Antichrist who will ultimately enter into the tribulation and permeate and promote his, his, his doctrines. Human destiny. Man should take charge of his own future. Realize that he has within himself power to achieve the world of his dreams. Um, I mean, these are all, this mentality, this white horse and the rider represents this flawed philosophies. These damnable doctrines. And, all, and the Antichrist will come on the scene and rise quickly because he'll have all the answers, but they will not be rooted in Scripture. And we see in Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4, When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and they, that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Remember I was talking about the fact that, that I believe that each of those seals, uh, the, the six seals, and then the six trumpets, and ultimately the vials represent a summary of the entire Entire uh, tribulation. Well, here we see now that peace will be taken away. That happens in the middle of the tribulation primarily. So now we see that the seals have jumped from the beginning where the Antichrist assumes power and rises to power. And now all of a sudden there's going to be no more peace. It's going to be war. <laughs> because that's exactly what the rider of the red horse and the red horse represent. War and bloodshed. We are going to see war in the tribulation period, or you will see it, or somebody that's here will see war on a scale never known on earth before. War that will make the conflicts of the past century, the 1900s, seem like nothing in comparison. Like nothing you've ever 
read about or seen. You know, we think about the conflict over there with Russia and Ukraine, and we think, oh, how horrible that is. My friend, that is a, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what's going to transpire and take place, compared to the death and the carnage that will happen during the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. We're going to see famine and economic disaster like never before. (laughs) The rider on the black horse is commanded, interestingly enough, to leave the luxuries of the rich untouched. But the wheat, the barley, you know, of the poor, the normal working class, these are to be weighed out a pinch at a time for exuberant amounts of money. Literally what he's implying is this. You will work all day yourself, you yourself, for just enough bread to exist that day. Not enough to make for your family, but you will work yourself all day in order to provide for one day's sustenance. Can you imagine, compared to where we live today in America, and you say, I know, but things are out of control. Look at the price. Yeah, compared to this, this is nothing. So the writer symbolizes the dying prosperity of those last days. He represents famine and economic disaster like never before. Again, it's been a problem around the world for decades. If you had looked at other countries, you could have seen poverty. You could have seen uh, famine. But we've been guarded and shielded in America. We don't understand those things. We hear about it. Our parents used to say things like, do you know there, there are people over in India that would love to have those scraps. And we're like, yeah, whatever. Let me tell you, there have been people dying of starvation around our planet and globe for years, but I'm telling you, there's nothing like this. It's going to be worldwide. Not only that, but look, if you would, over in Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. Oh, excuse me, 6 through 8. He says, And I heard a voice in the, excuse me, in verse 7 and 8, I'm sorry. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth. I want you to think about that for a minute. The fourth part of the earth. If you have eight of something and you get a fourth part, how much is that? Two of the eight. One quarter, 25%. Notice, and I looked and behold a pale horse, verse 8, and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. I want you to think about this for a minute. Hey, young people, think about this. One-fourth of the entire population of the earth will die with that particular rider and horse. 
And it won't be like he's riding on a horse and killing people. You notice he says he's talking about beasts. He's talking about the elements here of famine. He's talking about all these elements that are going to come together during the tribulation period. It was over 7 billion people moving quickly toward 8 billion people on planet Earth. That means 2 billion people will die at least, minimum. And there's going to be more than that even. Can you imagine 2 billion do you know how many died so far in the entire COVID pandemic? 6.3 million. The entire pandemic, worldwide, 6.3 million. You're talking about in the tribulation period, over 2 billion. Can't even wrap our minds around the devastation. It's crazy. War and famine will give rise to pestilence. It'll be unbelievable. Unbelievable. Have war, famine, pestilence, and all of this literally wiping out billions of people. It's going to be no joke. It's not going to be a place you want to be. It's going to be filled with pain and suffering, death and loss, sadness, hunger and starvation, disease, scourge and tears. Boy, I'll tell you what, it's to be avoided at all costs. And when Jesus returns at the rapture, the return of Christ, when he comes in the clouds, not when he ultimately takes his place on earth, because he comes in the clouds at the end of the church age and the church itself, the body of Christ, those that have put their personal faith and trust in him will be taken out. We'll go up to meet the Lord in the air according to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But then after that seven years, then he returns to earth to establish his kingdom. But my friend, between the time we leave and the time he returns, there's going to be devastation on planet earth like we've never, ever, ever seen. It's great tribulation. You, got, you may say to yourself, well, you know, I've got a lot of things to do. You know, I've got plenty of time. Well, there may be less time than you imagine. We don't know when Christ is going to return. We don't have a crystal ball to tell us the date. We can't say for sure that he'll be here in a certain week or month or year. I'm going to be honest with you. You go ahead and believe what you want. But I'm not putting a lot of faith in some of the stuff that we read about in the news and, and about all the stuff, you know, not so much the news, but these blogs. You know, everybody, years ago it was the blood moons, and then it was this, and then it was that, and it's all these other things. Man, why are we worried about that? Let's just quit worrying about that and let's talk to people about Jesus because he's coming back. And can I tell you, by the way, this is an interesting thought. You know that somebody has to be saved and will be the last person that's really born again before Christ can return because his body, his bride, has to be complete before he, leave, he comes back for us. Maybe you would have the opportunity to lead that last soul to Christ. Maybe you would have the privilege of being the one to say, hey, would you like to trust Christ right now after hearing the gospel? Yes, I would. Praise God. I, I invite you into my life, Lord. I need you. I can never get to heaven with all, all my own strength. I need your forgiveness, your love, your grace. I'm asking you to come into my life, save me and forgive me. And amen. And boom, we're out. That'd be fun if I was the one getting to lead him to the Lord. I'd be up in heaven, you know, I'd be like, hey, Moses, you parted the Red Sea, but I won the last soul. <laughs> I'd like that, wouldn't you? Man. So I'm telling you, you don't know. 
What if Jesus does come back and you're left behind? What if he does return and you don't go? That's why this is serious business. And that's why I want to share with you just a few of the signs of the times to help you understand his return could be soon. You say, well, it's been a long time. He hasn't come back yet. I know, but he could come back at any moment. You better be prepared. We need to be ready. So what are some of the signs of the times? Number one, Jesus characterized the mental state of the world just before his return. He characterized the mental state of the world and what state it will be in prior to his returning. In Luke chapter 21, verse 25, turn there, would you please? Luke chapter 21, verse 25. Again, the mental state, the, 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 the outlook. Look at this. This is interesting. <clears throat> now, some people live like this every day of their life. Okay, so, I mean, I guess I'll give you that. But we're talking about the global attitude, the world outlook. Notice what it says here in Luke chapter 21, verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Now again, remember, we're dealing with the tribulation period, but there are things that lead up to that. Watch the, the, the mentality, the attitude, if you will, the mental state of the world before his return. And again, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I see this primarily his return here at this section when he literally arrives to set up his kingdom. However, it is a sign of our times as we draw closer to this mentality and as we see this being perpetuated in our culture. I'm telling you, it's just a sign to us. You better be prepared. He could be coming back for his church. Notice what it says here, Luke 21, 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring. To be distressed is to be under pressure. Perplexity means bewilderment. In other words, he's saying the generation before his return would be under such severe pressure from every point of view that there'd be no apparent way out. They're not going to see an escape. They're not going to know where to turn next. They're not going to know what to do next. Can I tell you, we are rapidly approaching that. It seems to me that we have many, many people in leadership that have no clue what to do to fix the problems. And I don't know about you, but I'm being more and more prone to perplexity today. I am bewildered. I struggle as I view our world and our circumstance, our situation, and even our own nation. And I think to myself, where's this going and where will it end I think it's a sign of, a sign of the times. The economic, social, and political condition of our world is in constant upheaval and becoming more grim at every turn, it seems. We're bombarded with images, both in America and around the world, that reinforce this reality. Number two, Jesus points out the moral state of the world prior to his return. Look, if you would, in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Again, I, I'm not setting any dates. I have no clue. I, the Lord could be, may not come back in 100 years. I don't know. That, that's his business. But I'm telling you, things seem to be shaping up. I, I, you know, I, 
I prayed just this morning. I was sitting out in my car out in the parking lot. I shouldn't have said that because some of you might know where I'm at then. I get to get worried about that sometimes. I'm perplexed. But anyway, I said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Man, I'm telling you what, I would not be disappointed if he came. Now, listen, I know, I know. You know, I'm 59. I'm going towards 60. I'm over the hill. I get it. And these young people look at me and they say, man, he is old. And when I was your age, I thought that too. And I know that as a young person, it's much more difficult to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Man, you want to live a little life. Boy, you and I that have lived a few years on this earth, we've started to see some things. We have watched as things have truly changed over these years. And we start to say to ourselves, wow, things are different and they're not moving in any positive direction. It doesn't look like things might get better. It looks like they might only get worse. And we say, Lord, come back, please. And not only that, but we don't want to have to go to the grave either. It'd be nice not to have to go die, would it? It'd be nice just to go right up to heaven. I'd like that. But Jesus points out the moral state of the world. Look at this, Luke 17, 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now there's a couple thoughts here. There's a couple things that kind of ring true, I think, in the passage. One, it indicates a breakdown of the home and and extremely loose morals. We know that the the state of the world at that point was in a mess. We know that it was so much a mess that it repented the Lord that he had created mankind at all. What that means is that he he was like, man, I I wish I wouldn't have done it. I'm going to have to do something about this. And he brought a worldwide flood because of the evil of mankind, because of the violence that was being exhibited and, and, and that was taking place on the earth. He said that the imagination of men, the imaginations of men were evil continually. It's all they could think about. But not only that, but it kind of emphasizes this thought of living our lives without regard for God at all. Like going about life as usual. Like not recognizing that God is in the heavenlies, that God is in control, that he has a right to direct our steps and guide us. Like, I'm just going about my life as I normally do. People are being married and they're, 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 they're having children, they're working jobs, they're going about their lives, but with no regard of God whatsoever. And that is going to affect their morality. That affects their perspective, uh, you know, spiritually. And now God is not a part of it. And as a result of that, man, things have gone downhill quickly. And we see evidence of that in our own world. We see it in our own nation. The moral state of the world prior to his return. Another sign is he's, he predicts, his prediction concerning war would be another example. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 67. So as we start thinking about some signs of the times, we think about the mental state of the world just before his return. I mean, distress and perplexity. We think about the moral state of the world just a disregard for biblical truths and morals, a breakdown of the home. We think about the fact that there's no thought of God in our hearts, our lives. Very similar, if you will, to the days of Noah. 
Number three, again, his prediction concerning war. He said in Matthew 24, 67, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, for nation shall rise against nation. Now we know that this will transpire and take place in the tribulation period. We know this. We know that tensions will be so high. We, we, we recognize biblically that the, the, the Antichrist will rise to power quickly and he will assume that power through flattery. He will not have to fire a bow, uh, 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 shoot an arrow or, or fire a gun, so to speak. In a sense, it's going to be a peaceful uh, elevation of power. He's going to take over because he has all the answers and the solutions to mankind's problems, or so it will appear. And now at the middle of that tribulation period, it's going to break out. It's going to go buck wild. And we're going to see that along the way they're going to be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. But can I tell you, we're already recognizing that more than ever, aren't we? And can I tell you, with the introduction of the Internet and, and, and uh, the ability to hear about everyone around the world at all times, it's always in our face. It's always in our ears. We're being bombarded with information, negative, critical stuff that just seems to weigh on us. Where we see, as we said, Russia over in Ukraine. We hear about the potential for China to go down into Taiwan. We, we, there's all kind of skirmishes. There's been war on the earth ever since mankind came out of the garden. But it just seems that we're going to hear more and more and more about it. I think that's a sign of the times. It will ultimately culminate and end with the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. People often say, do you think we're going to have Armageddon over there in the Middle East? Not while I'm on planet Earth. I'll be coming back with the Lord when that happens. I do not worry about Armageddon, but I can tell you this. You don't need Armageddon to cause problems in the world when it comes to war. But no, Armageddon will not take place until after the tribulation period, and I'll be gone before that begins. Number four. Another sign is the trend toward globalization or a one-world system of commerce and culture. Again, the, the, the trend is toward global citizenship that will replace national identity. We're seeing that already. In America, we're seeing that to our detriment. The push is for a system of world law enforced by an international police force that will take precedent over national, state, and even local law enforcement. Can you imagine? I mean, we've got enough mess in our world already with our politicians and people trying to, you know, defund police and do all this mess. And we're having, our, our cities are rampant with murder and, and, and killings and all these things are happening. Can you imagine if we turn all of that over to an international group or panel? That'd be a mess. It's bad enough. And they're on the ground. They're supposed to be representing us personally. Can you imagine if somebody over there, they could care less about us, but they're going to have their own personal standards and laws and they'll be enforced in our nation and it will happen. And I see we're moving in that direction now. We're giving up our autonomy as we speak. We're allowing international law to ultimately affect us through climate change. We're seeing it. It's all happening. You don't think all of this is all part of the demonic plan of Satan to ultimately bring about his superhero, Antichrist? Man, this is all orchestrated. 
This isn't by chance or coincidence. It's all part of the plan, his master plan, and may I say God's master plan. God knows what's taking place. He's not taken by surprise. Matter of fact, he's allowing it to happen. Some things have to happen before we can be brought or taken out. Revelation 13, 5 through 8, it speaks of this Antichrist. And this is why I believe that this trend toward globalization is absolutely necessary. And we're seeing it. I believe it's a sign of the times because ultimately globalization will have to be in place for him to have the authority that he has and to be world ruler as the Bible outlines. It says in Revelation 13, 5 through 8, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Man, I mean to tell you, the Antichrist is going to go off on God. He is going to just rip God bad. And then it goes on to say, verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Who are down on earth at this point? The Jews. I'm not going to be here. You're not going to be here if you know Christ is your Savior. He's going to make war with the Jew. And then I need to tell you, he is going to go totally bonkers. <laughs> He's going to try to annihilate them. We think that Hitler's attempts to do away with the Jewish race was unbelievable. It will, it will be nothing in comparison to what the Antichrist will do. Notice what it says, verse 7, And he, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. That's all part of God's plan, by the way. Because remember, he's judging Israel for rejecting him. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. There's globalism. He has power over all kindred, tongues, and nations. Listen, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall what? Worship him. It's interesting, isn't it? We're moving toward this. Everything's about, about justice and peace. But wait a second. When someone finally gets in authority, what do they use it for? Power. Because, see, nobody can handle world dominance or power except Jesus Christ, the God-man. Because in this flesh, we are prone to pride and to hurt and harm those that stand in our way or our ambition. And the fact is, is there's no world leader that will ever be able to handle that kind of authority and power without wanting full dominance and worship. And the Antichrist will demand it, and you will die if you don't give it to him. Matter of fact, he's going to offer you the opportunity to join his little band and take a mark called the Mark of the Beast. And if you don't take it, you'll be hunted down and killed and totally annihilated. You'll be put on a guillotine and you'll lose your head for not following him and worshiping him. I would never take the Mark of the Beast, you say. Oh, really? Think about the compromise that's going to take place if the shells really do end up going away and we don't have food on our shelves. Think about what happened in certain countries. It, think about the French Revolution and why it transpired and took place. I'll tell you why. Because common people couldn't find food to feed their families and they revolted against their government in order to somehow come to some means of survival. 
Listen, I'm going to tell you what, you'll do crazy things to provide for your family. And I'm telling you this, as a believer, I won't even be here for that. I'll be gone. But if you're left behind, my friend, you'll take the mark of the beast more than likely. Oh, I won't do it. Let me ask you, have you ever been convicted of the Holy Spirit to trust Christ as your Savior? According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll take the mark because you'll believe all the lies of Satan. And I'm going to tell you something, I want to miss out on all that mess. can't imagine we're going to bow down to this guy. I'll never bow down to him. You will. If you're here, you will, or you'll die. That's the way the Bible says. Now listen, is the Bible true or isn't it true? You say, well, I don't know. I won't do it. Well, wait, is the Bible true or isn't it true? But you don't understand. Is the Bible true or isn't it true? That is the only question you have to ask yourself. Because if it's true, then I don't care what you think you'll do. You'll do exactly what the Bible says. Let me tell you what, the world's going to be a horrible place. You think it's bad now? It's a drop in the bucket. It's, a, it's scratching the surface compared to where it'll be. We could talk about the emphasis on the word peace. Another example there in that word peace, but I don't want to go into it, I don't have time. Another example is when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, 14, he said, in this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. His implication is that the world will be able to be exposed to the gospel, complete world exposed to the gospel. You know, we think about radio, television, the printed page, internet, the gospel is being proclaimed around the world for the first time in history, really. Like it's never been before. Take, for instance, Starlink. Starlink is an internet service which has been available only since the fall of 2020. I want you to think about this. After just a few years of launching this particular service, the company has amassed a constellation of more than 2,000, listen to this, 2,000 low-Earth orbit satellites. 2,000. The service is available already in 32 countries. It's all satellite-based. So it doesn't matter where you're at in the nation. It doesn't matter where you're at in the world. Ultimately, keep, they just keep putting up more satellites and more satellites and more satellites pretty soon. I don't care where you're at. It doesn't matter how remote the location will be. Anyone, everyone will have access to the gospel and to the Internet anywhere in the world. Because of satellites. Already 32 countries, just this one. And only two, not even two full years yet, they've already come this far. That's a sign of the times, folks. And finally, the greatest sign of all, and and there's numbers of others, but the greatest sign of all is the fact that back in 1948, Israel found their way back to their homeland. After being literally for thousands of years scattered around the world as God predicted and prophesied. As he prophesied and predicted before the return of Christ, they would be gathered again in their land. And we've seen that and they continue to move in that direction. I'm going to tell you what, there are many signs that point to the possible return of Christ at any moment, any time. It is an imminent return. He is returning. He is coming back. The question is not if, but when. I don't know the hour. 
I don't know the day. I don't know the month. I don't know the year. And you know, it's unscriptural even, unbiblical to try to set a date for Christ's return. These jokers running around. 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Then it was, well, 94 reasons he'll return in 1994. But they got rich anyway. Because Christians are that gullible. I'm not buying that junk. I just know what the Bible says. I better be ready. I better be watching. And boy, I'm going to say, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you better settle that. And what I mean by that is simply this. He died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Why in the world did Jesus have to die on a cross if you and I could be good enough to get to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. Really? That's enough? Then why did he die? Why did God the Father send Jesus Christ, who is God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, to literally take your place? God took his place on Calvary for you. Literally, the God that created you died in your stead and took your place. He paid the penalty for your sin, and he paid the penalty for mine. But you have to have that blood that he shed on Calvary, that sacrifice that he made applied to your life, in order for your soul to be saved from sin and the consequences of it. If, if you fail to receive and accept Christ at some point in your life, prior to the return of Jesus, you will go into the tribulation period. You will endure those billions of deaths. You will have to focus and, uh, and, and, and find your way through and navigate through that horrible, horrible time. And may I say, <laughs> you, it's Russian roulette, friend. Oh, I'll get through it. Really? And then if you get through it, where will you end up anyway? You're going to take the mark? Because if you get through it taking the mark, the Bible guarantees you're going to go to a place called the lake of fire. Even if you live through it, you're going to go there. The only way you don't is if you're willing to die. Being willing to die is a lot easier said than done. You need to trust Christ today. You need to prepare by inviting Christ into your life. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want me to perish. He doesn't want you to pay for your sin. Because see, the wages of sin is death. That means you're going to die physically, but also that points to what's called the second death. We run right over to Revelation chapter uh, Chapter 20, verse 15, where it says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You're going to die physically, yes, but you'll also die spiritually to be eternally separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire. I don't want that. You don't want that. God doesn't want that for us. So you need to settle your soul's salvation. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve to go to hell. I'm so wretched, so vile inside. I'm, I'm an offense to you because you're so perfect and holy but I need you to forgive me. Oh God, forgive me. Save me from my sin. Take me to heaven. I don't deserve it, but I want you to show your mercy and your grace on me now. You don't even have to say it like that. You just need to cry out to God for his forgiveness and invite him into your life and say, I need you and I can't get to heaven myself. I can't have a relationship with you on my own. I've got to have you. You've got to do it in me. I need you today, Lord Jesus. Save me. Forgive me. You know what? Jesus returns you'll be gone. Otherwise, you'll go through the tribulation. You say, trying to scare us? I wish I could. I do. I wish I could. Yeah. If I could, I, I'd like to get you up here. I'd like to twist your arm. 
If I could twist it enough that you'd actually receive Christ, I'd do it. Now, we know that doesn't work, but I'd like to do it. If it worked, I'd do it. And believe me, I could do it. <laughs> Maybe not. But anyway, the future belongs to God today. It doesn't belong to communism, doesn't belong to socialism, doesn't belong to capitalism. It doesn't belong to politics or the economy. It belongs to God. He holds the future in His hands. And He's given us a picture of it all. He lets us see it so that we can make a choice to escape the bad and enjoy the good. And it's all the good is found in Him. Always in Christ. Won't you trust Christ today? The Japanese forces had invaded the Philippines and on a day that marked the beginning of a dark chapter for the Americans and the Filipino forces, General Douglas MacArthur was ordered to leave the island of Corregidor and its forces, which were surrounded. Bataan would fall on April the 9th, 1942, and just 27 days later, after a relentless attack, Corregidor would also fall. Before leaving MacArthur, he would make an astonishing promise. He made it to the Filipino people because he had grown to love them so awfully much. He said, I shall return. You know, when he made that promise to return, a lot of people thought he was just downright crazy. But he was determined to free the Filipino people from Japanese occupation. And you know what? No amount of criticism could keep him from that passion and that desire. Roughly two and a half years later, on October the 20th, 1944, General MacArthur landed once again on Philippine soil and he said, People of the Philippines, I have returned. We know the rest of the story. He liberated the Philippines. Let me tell you, there are plenty of signs that point to the fact that he's coming back. He said he's coming back. And I'm telling you, one day he'll say, I have returned. Are you ready? I pray and hope you are. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you just speak to our hearts again. We thank you for this time we've had together around your word. May you just be glorified. Now, Lord, if there be any that are without Christ, may they settle their soul's salvation even now. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction to their heart, their life, and may they realize their need of Jesus Christ. Lord, he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our allegiance, our love. Lord, he deserves that anyway. But Lord, in the midst of us recognizing his right to us and the, our, our submission to him, he also gives us freedom from, the, from sin and the consequences of it. Thank you so much for your forgiveness. Thank you that you allow us to be a part of your family. And Lord, if there be any that are without you, may again you bring conviction to their heart that they'd see a need to trust Jesus even now. And for the believer, may we just revel in the fact that we know the Savior, that he's coming back. And may we be encouraged to know that no matter how grim or dark the world we live in may get, we always can look up and see the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, and know that we're in good hands. Father, we need you now. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed.